Hi, welcome to Mendy's Musings. We hope you enjoy the following podcast and welcome you to leave any comments or critiques you may have. Okay, so we took a one week break. Hopefully you all had a wonderful Lagba Omer. For those of you that uh, didn't get the email, apologize for the miscommunication, but we're glad you're all here. And uh, you should have received a, an email with a, so did you get an, you still haven't gotten any emails from No, them. I did. Oh, you did, we found them. Okay, yes. good. So you got a link and a recording. For those of you that are not able to attend any of the particular lessons, you can use those links in the recordings to uh, go back over or catch up on something that you have missed. Is there what today? No, just one last week. We only send out one email in between each lesson. If I have to send out a second email, there's a surcharge. So in the efforts of trying to keep the classes at a low economical price, it's just one email. Okay. So tonight we are going to continue our exploration into the supernatural or the supernatural. Uh, we're going to be talking about stars and signs. And it's interesting that Judaism covers a wide range of topics, obviously. Anything related to the human experience is addressed in Jewish tradition. But at different times in society, and because of different events that are taking place, the value of those ideas, those conversations, can dramatically change. Hold on one second. vulnerable before without the jacket. <laughs> so as I was saying, at different moments in time, different traditions, different customs, different ideas will have different relevance and pertinence. And I'll give you a great example, Shabbat. So Shabbat is a day that we celebrate the fact that we're not working and we remove ourselves from society. We reconnect, we re-energize, we rejuvenate. But imagine the difference between celebrating Shabbat in the 21st century at a time when we are hyper-connected and we are plugged in every moment of the day. Imagine how that relates to celebrating Shabbat in the 18th century in a small village or shtetl in Poland or Ukraine. Where yes, they worked hard without a doubt, but by and large they were still disconnected from society, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So the meaning and the significance of what Shabbat is in a person's life dramatically changes based on the context. What does that have to do with tonight's discussion? Well, the significance of stars and signs and how much value we ascribe to astrology has changed, ebbed, and flowed over the years. And there have been moments throughout history, as we're going to learn, where this was a tremendously valuable source of information and guidance. Other times where we didn't value 
this idea because science reigns supreme. And if you couldn't scientifically qualify exactly what you were learning, what you understood, it had no value in human discourse. Today, today, as we're going to see, stars and signs and the conversations about astrology has started to make quite a resurgence. Maybe it's because people are looking for guidance. There's a lot of chaos in the world, things and ideas and institutions that at one point were sacrosanct, were 100% infallible today, are flipped upside down. And when we're looking for something to latch on to, to guide us, oftentimes, as a natural human being, we look up. And what do we see above us? The heavens, these celestial spheres, stars, planets, and so on and so forth. So I think in today's day and age, this conversation is even more relevant than it might have been even 50 or 60 years ago. And polls reflect this. I was actually quite surprised because if you think about a poll, and a poll that's being done effectively, it's running a full range of human beings. So not necessarily reflective of our group tonight. And in some of the recent surveys done in 2018, and I think this, these numbers are actually higher today post-COVID, they found that 29% of Americans, American adults that is, believed in astrology in some way, shape or form. Now, obviously, there's a range there. It doesn't mean that they got up, read their daily horoscope, and then walked to the first person that came into their, uh, into their world and said, you're going to be my new relationship for today because my horoscope says that wonderful new relationships are in my future. You're the first thing that I saw. Well, we know the story about committing yourself to the first thing that comes to the door in the Bible. It didn't end very well. Um, in fact, I had this conversation totally off subject, but the story about Rapunzel and the long hair, many people believe is a take off of the story in the Bible where this man says, the first thing that comes to the door, I will dedicate as a sacrifice to thank God. And it was his daughter. So she ended up being locked away in a tower. And 29% of adults surveyed in 2018 said that they believe in astrology. And if you want to see the breakdown, you, between the ages of 30 and 49, the number's as high as 34%. 34%, that means one out of th every three people believed that there is a significant value in understanding a placement of stars and the placement of the planets and that relation to us as human beings and the events that are happening in our lives. Think about how many people today define themselves as religious and how low that number has dropped. So what that tells you is that 29, 32, 34% you have people that are not religious and are still seeing a lot of value in astrology. It transcends any particular organized faith. So while we're looking at it from one prism today, it's just, it's, it's really, I think, very telling that people are seeking and looking for something. And this is a natural uh, extension of that. Cheryl, you can hear me? Yes? Maybe? Okay. You'll let me know. Yes. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. <clears throat> so, 
think we're going to watch our video now. Zodiacs are very rarely mentioned in the Talmud, 
so the rabbis couldn't have considered them overly important. Instead, they paid close attention to the hourly mazalot. How do those work? Divide each day into 12 equal hours, and each night into another 12. Each hour of the day and night is influenced by another of the big seven. Begin with the first hour of Saturday night. Put Mercury in that slot. For the second hour, add the moon. The third hour belongs to Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, and the seventh hour is Venus. For the eighth hour, begin the pattern again. In goes Mercury. And we keep up the same pattern all week long. It fits perfectly, so we always start again with Mercury at the first hour of Saturday night. Now, in addition to the planets rotating their rule on an hourly basis, there is also the concept of daily Mazalot. For this, we must view the day and the night as two distinct units of time. We then identify one dominant Mazel for the 12 daytime hours, and another dominant Mazel for the 12 night hours. Let's take Tuesday as an example. Which planet dominates the first hour of the day? That would be Mars. So Mars is the major player for that entire 12-hour period, while the others are minor players. But when night falls on Tuesday, Mars steps down from its throne. Which planet takes its place? Saturn sits at the first hour of each Tuesday night. So Saturn becomes the primary influencer throughout that night. That's how the daily Mazalot works. But as mentioned earlier, the Talmudic sages focus mainly on the hourly Mazalot. For example, if you wanted to discover something about your natural personality, you would identify the precise hour of your birth and take note of its dominant mazal, which lends a whole new meaning to our responding to a birth with mazal talk. Okay, so <laughs> as in classic Jewish fashion, yes, we believe that astrology has value, but differently than what you might see in conventional society. And so if you have experience with a fortune teller, a crystal ball, if you have an app that tells you your, your daily astrological value or whatnot, there is definitely going to be some crossover in our conversation tonight, but ultimately we're going to take it in a different and unique path. So let's go back to the three relationships between human beings and the astrolog astrological uh, entities. And I also want to point out that you'll notice we're referencing stars, constellations, but we're also referencing planets. In Jewish tradition, both are highlighted significantly. So the first is natal, which refers to our birth. And as you heard, people say mazel tov. Most people think that mazel tov means congratulations, but that's not true. The word mazal comes from the Hebrew word nozel, which means to draw down. Because essentially what you're saying is that I hope this energy that's being drawn down into this new child 
is a positive one, is a good one, based off of, first and foremost, when they were born. The second is a general uh, relationship based off of current events. So what is the relationship between an event that's happening right now, a large event that's happening right now, and the astrological signs? And Katarkic, which is the last one, talks about the specific actions that a person might take at any given time and how those are related to their astrological signs. So those are generally the three relationships that we have. And within that, we can then explore, like you saw, hours, days, months, as the three primary times when we're taking a snapshot of the astrological spheres. Yep. Is that your question, Gay? Okay. You're welcome, Rob. Gabe noticed that you were trying to get in, so if you want to send a little note after class. What do you think Judaism's stance is on astrology and why? If you had to make one strong determination about Jewish astrology, how would it differ from general astrology? Mitch? Okay. I feel like the fact that that situation happened, there's some truth to it. I don't know exactly the extent of it. So you're saying that you believe Judaism's stance is that there's some truth to astrology. Okay. Absolutely. Completely agree. Where do you think, by the way, is it warm in here? Cool in here? What's the temperature? Fine. Okay. What... Uh, where do you think Judaism would differ from conventional astrology? I read the chapter, so I don't Yeah! <laughs> you made one mistake, Claudia. What? You're not supposed to tell us that. I know. You're supposed to just profess your intelligence and so on and so forth without telling us that. Judaism goes, eh, you know, we had free will. That's the answer. Judaism generally says, eh in Jackie Mason form. So Judaism definitely is going to find some kind of balance between humanity and our presence in our lives and what the astrological spheres are going to tell us about our future, our inclination, and so on and so forth. Let us turn to page 46. Now, in true, in true uh, classic JLI form, the, um, the diagram you're about to look at is overwhelming. There's a lot of information here. We're not gonna cover it all in great detail, but by all means, hopefully you'll take the time. And again, minus Diane, who I know I struggled to get a book to today, and I apologize again. Anyone that did not get a book yet, we have plenty of books, and if you let me know, if you want to come by tomorrow, for example, I can leave books in the mailbox. We can arrange that people can get their books. So just shoot me a message 
um, before class, after class, anytime, raise your hand and let me know. What you're looking at is the astrological system that is found in Jewish sources, primarily in the Talmud. You can see the planets that are referenced here. They are not all of the planets of our solar system. And it also includes planets like the sun, which sun is technically, I believe, a star. But in any event, um, it doesn't operate exactly the same way we would look at the planetary system. So you gotta refr reframe your perspective. The moon is one of the planets that we look at, or I should say one of the uh, orbiting uh, uh, bodies that we look at. Um, let's look for a, cent a second at the monthly mazalot. So these are the uh, associated constellations for each month. And again, we're not looking at January, February. We're looking at the Hebrew months. The first Hebrew month is not the month of Rosh Hashanah, Tishrei. It is the month of Nisan, the month when the Jewish people left Egypt during the Exodus. So Nisan is related to Aries. You have Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. And so in that sense, many of them are very similar but they don't necessarily cross over in the way that they are applied. Lunar system, solar system. So there is some crossover with astrology, but there are also some important differences, which is why the first thing that I would say before we even get into the details that when you're looking at your horoscope, you need to know the source for the information. Not all horoscopes, not all studies of astrology are created equally. They can seem similar, but there are very important and nuanced differences between different studies of astrology. That's what this is so valuable to show. Uh, if you look at the hours of the day, so this is on the left-hand side of the page. We just talked about this in the video for those of you that do not have a book. Uh, each hour is ascribed to a different planet. Each hour of each day might have a different association with the planet. Now, I'll just give you an example, okay? If you look at Saturday, during the seventh hour, right, you'll notice that I believe it is, or the eighth hour, there is an association with Mercury or Mars. There is a tradition that during the sixth hour on Friday evening, we do not make Kiddush. What is Kiddush? We don't take a cup of wine and sanctify the holy day of Shabbat. Are you familiar with the tradition, Mitch? I actually wrote that down as a question. You wrote it down as a question. Good for you, man. That's awesome. So the reason is that traditionally when you use wine in a ceremony, especially Friday night and Saturday night, you're supposed to use red wine. It's not a biblical requirement, but in, in Shabbat traditionally was welcomed in and celebrated its exit with red wine. And you're not supposed to drink red wine during that hour because there is a mazal, right? Back to the word mazal tov. There is a horoscope related to red, which is negative. Mazal ma'adim. Red horoscopes generally are considered something negative associated with bad things. So you don't want to channel this negative energy into your life, into your celebration of Shabbat. 
So either you make kiddush on white wine, which is still acceptable. Some people would, would prefer not to do that. It's a custom. Or you wait. And you'll go to Orthodox communities when Shabbat starts really early. In New York City, for example, you can celebrate Shabbat starting at 5 o'clock in the winter. And you'll see people rushing to get through their evening service, and you'll know, oh, they make Kiddush before 6. And then you'll see the other crew that's sitting around, talking, not yet. They're an after 7 family. Right away, you can see the difference. But it's a pr just a practical example of how a horoscope, a mazal, 100%, has a real life implication in how you are observing a very important tradition in Jewish life, Shabbat. Whether you're starting your dinner before or after, all related to astrology. So this is not just a conversation of theory. This is not just a conversation about ideas. This is a very real, relevant, pertinent conversation that affects the way we live our life every single day. When we say Mazel Tov, it has real significance because we recognize that there is real significance to where things are at at any given moment in time. And that's what we're highlighting here. Um, yeah, here's a, a, an ancient Rabbi Hanina, who was a very prominent scholar in, in the Talmud, lived in absolute poverty, performed miraculous things in the Talmudic stories. He writes that, oops, someone got Where are my? There we go. He writes in this column uh, about the relationship between the planets specifically and a person's birth. So you can see that if you're born under the sun, when the sun is dominant, that's a lustrous appearance. A moon is suffering afflictions, mercury, radiance and wisdom, Venus, wealth and promiscuity. Interesting how they go together. Mars, spiller of blood. That's the red that I was referring to, Mars specifically. Jupiter, righteousness, and Saturn, plans will come to not. Maybe you go around and around in circles like the rings on Saturn. That's my own interpretation. So we see quite clearly that astrology is very real, very much a part of our tradition, but that there are important nuances and differences between our view and the more general popular view of astrology. Let's look at some examples in the Torah. Text 1a, page 48. So Pharaoh's decree, like Mitch referenced, Pharaoh had a group of astrologers, was very popular in Egyptian society, to look to the stars and the planets for guidance on what to do. And so Pharaoh has uh, enslaved the Jewish people, but they, are, they continue to, uh, to multiply at an alarming rate, and he's concerned about what's happening. What do the astrologers tell him? That they see someone has been born or is about to be born that will save the Jewish people. A male, specifically a male. So what does Pharaoh say? He gives an order to every boy that is born must be cast into the Nile, but let every girl live. He doesn't say every Jewish child. 
It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, uh, note that I think a lot of people gloss over. He says, every boy that's born. That means Egyptian and Jewish alike. Why would he throw his own Egyptian firstborns into the Nile River? Or not just firstborns, his own Egyptian male babies into the river? The answer, Rashi says, 1b, page 49, Pharaoh made his decree on his own people as well. He did so because on the day Moses was born, his astrologers told him, the savior of the Jewish people was born today, but we did not know if this person is a Jew or Egyptian. We do see, however, that his eventual downfall will be through water. Pharaoh therefore made a decree that very day against all newborn boys, including the Egyptians. So was there some value to what they saw? Was the savior of the Jewish people born that day? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was definitely some value to what they saw. Were they able to predict the future in perfect clarity as a result? No. And this was understood by the Egyptian hierarchy. They understood that. They recognized that you might get some idea and might not be exactly the idea. So the notion, this romantic notion that, that throughout history we could look at the stars and we could look, and they would tell us exactly what we needed to know is probably not true. It might give us some ideas, some inclinations, even societies that worshipped these celestial spheres, even they recognized the limitation on the information they were receiving to the point where he's compelling all these male babies in his own society to be killed because he's not exactly sure which one is going to save the Jewish people. Let's look at some more examples on page 50. We have a number of examples from Abraham himself. Abraham was nervous that he was not going to have an heir, a son that's going to inherit him, not just his material wealth, but first and foremost, the tradition of monotheism that he had introduced to the world. So according to um, the Talmud, he, he has a conversation with God where he says, I read my astrological signs and I am unable to have a son. And God tells him, abandon your astrology. Why? Because the Jewish people are not controlled by the constellations. Are you concerned because Jupiter is in the west? I will move Jupiter to the east. And of course, we know that Abraham had a son. We knew he was 100 years old, his second son. Of course, Ishmael was born 13 years earlier, but his second son, Isaac, who would inherit him, was born subsequently. So what is God telling him? You're worried about astrology? Astrology is not determinative. It doesn't say this is the future. It's the first inkling we get about the Jewish relationship with astrology. It does not tell us the absolute future. Let's look at uh, Potiphar. Oh, that's a great one. The seductive power of astrology. This is one, two, three, the fourth case study you should have. Joseph was, oh, we have a chat question. Could astrology be compared to interpreting nature seasons we choose to have a way? Uh, 
That's a great question, Heidi. Um, we'll talk about choice of time for specific events in a little bit. Um, but I would say that that's different between nature and seasons, which are defined in a different way. So seasons are, are ultimately defined by the sun. Um, so while the placement of the sun definitely is a factor in astrology, I don't know if I would specifically attach it to seasons or nature. That can definitely be a good omen for a specific celebration, but not necessarily um, as an, an astrological sign. But we'll talk about choosing, uh, choosing dates and times to have our special occasions in just a minute. So the seductive power of astrology. Joseph, of course, we know the story. He was the apple of his father's eye, and he incited jealousy amongst his brethren because he told them, hey, you guys are all going to worship me in the future. They didn't like that. Big shock. So what do they do? They conspire to kill him, then they sell him as a slave, and eventually he lands in Egypt working at Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the butcher for Pharaoh. Now, Potiphar's wife decides that she likes Joseph. So she comes and tries to throw herself at Joseph. And Joseph resists and resists. And eventually she grabs him and he runs away. And she accuses him of attacking her. And he gets thrown in jail. That's the way the story's told. And that's how he lands in jail. And eventually he interprets the dreams of his fellow prisoners. And he makes it in front of Pharaoh and interprets his dream and becomes the viceroy of Egypt. But according to this tradition, this explanation, Potiphar's wife saw astrologically that she was going to give birth to descendants of Joseph. She saw that she was going to bear descendants with Joseph. And you might say to yourself, that's insane, but it's not. Because who does Joseph marry? Who does Joseph marry after he's taken out of jail and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt? He's looking very different now, right? He marries this woman's daughter, Potiphar's daughter. Her name is Potipharah. Her name's in the Torah. So this woman that threw herself on Joseph, she saw something accurate. Not entirely accurate. She didn't know exactly how she was going to bring descendants to the future with Joseph, but she saw something accurate and acted upon that. Okay, let's jump. We'll show one more example and then we'll, uh, oh, let's do this because this will address your point, Heidi. The Haman. Oh, you guys, it's been so long since Perm, you forgot already what you're supposed to do in your Haman's name. Oh, gosh. So Haman, of course, is the villain of the Perm story, lived in the Persian Empire, served the Persian king, Ahasuerus, no disrespect. And uh, Haman wanted to destroy the Jewish people. He comes from the nation of Amalek, and Mordechai showed him no respect, etc., etc. So... He goes and decides he's going to destroy the Jewish people. But when is he going to do it? It's very interesting. Now, these people, people like Haman, they were people of faith. Did they listen to everything that God told them? No, not necessarily. But they recognized God's presence in the world. For example, he's making a calculation 
of how many years have passed since the destruction of the first temple. Because the prophet said that for 70 years, right, the temple will be destroyed and then its rebuilding will begin. He calculated incorrectly and said, oh, 70 years have come, 70 years have passed, nothing happened. God decided the Jewish people are not worthy. It's time for me to uh, unfurl my plan. So he, he throws a lot. Right? He's trying to figure out the best time to destroy the Jewish people. Why is the holiday called Purim? What does the word Purim mean? Lots. Halloween? Lots. It means lots. That's right. He built poor. He threw lots because he's trying to figure out what's the best time to destroy the Jewish people. And by throwing a lot, it's a way of, of allowing this decision to be made by forces greater than himself astrological forces in his mind. What does it fall on? The month of Adar. So he liked the month of Adar. Why? So take a look. He's looking at each one of the different zodiac signs, and everybody now understands why we call them zodiac signs, which is, I think, the greatest value of that video. Uh, Aries, the ram, favors the Jewish people because it represents the month of Passover and the Paschal Lamb. Oh, that's a fortuitous time for the Jewish people. Taurus, too, because, it's pro because of Joseph's association with the bull and the bull offerings in the temple. Gemini, because it's the twins, and that's David's grand ancestors. Leo, because Leos are like a lion cub. That's related to Daniel and the lion's den. Virgo recalls the merit of the young scholars, Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. And Libra, because of Job. He, he has a reason for every single one. For every single one. Finally, Haman arrived at Pisces, found no positive omen for the Jewish people, and rejoiced. Why? He said, look, instead of being the fish that swallows the Jews, that's what he thought he was going to be, he himself ended up being swallowed. And there's another explanation that he looked at that date and said, oh, this is the date when Moses died. Moses died in the month of Adar. It's a negative omen for the Jewish people. What he didn't know is that the same day that Moses died, he was also born. One of only a handful of people that was born and died on the same day, which by the way, completely off subject, is why we wish people in Jewish tradition you should live till 120. Where did that number come from? Because Moses lived exactly 120 years to the day. And it says he lived a full and complete life. So we know that is the symbol of a full and complete life. That's where it came from. So... Here's a great example, Heidi, to your point of how this man is scheduling a terrible, uh, uh, a terrible uh, colossal crisis for the Jewish people, a cataclysmic event to literally eradicate the Jewish people. And he's taking into account what the astrological sign is for that particular moment. And of course, the same thing could be said in the positive, scheduling uh, a, some kind of familial celebration uh, in a specific time because it has a positive Association, 110 percent. Um, was there another one we were going to show? Okay, let's move on. Before we move forward, we need to make one very, very, very important. Uh, disclaimer, distinction. 
Does anybody know what this means? Anybody in the Zoom world know what that means? Avodat kochavim umazalot. It means worshiping. Kochav is a star, right? And mazalot are celestial spheres. This is a term that we use to reference idolatry. Historically, this is a term that we use to reference idolatry. Why? Because so many idolatrous pagan philosophies center around worshiping stars, constellations, planets, and so on and so forth. So it is very important for us to recognize at the very beginning of our conversation that we don't go anywhere near worshiping these bodies even if they play a valuable role in our lives. We have to separate those two ideas. And you might say to yourself, oh, that's, that's not hard to understand. It was for many, many years. Many, many years. Because people looked at these celestial beings, or bodies, if you would, and they saw value and therefore started to see them as independent entities from their creator and therefore worthy of worship. And if you look at the, these historical religions that existed, almost all of them incorporated these ideas in their practice. So yes, we're talking about the value that they play in our lives without a doubt, but it is not in a form of worship in any way, shape, or form. So how do we look at their influence in our life? Without, without crossing that line into idolatrous worship. Well, the first perspective is that these heavenly bodies are imbued by God with a certain nature. Just like fire. We don't worship fire, but we recognize the power that fire has. Very powerful. It can kindle and illuminate. It can also destroy. So fire is very, very powerful. But it's powerful because God created it with the nature and the ability, the power and potential that it has. So it would be no reason for me to worship fire independently. Once I understand the source, of its power. Same thing could be said for these heavenly bodies. They may exert certain influence on our lives. There may be tremendous value in understanding where they are and what they're doing and at any given moment, but it's only because that's the nature that God gave them. That's the place that God gave them in our world, in our universe. The other perspective which I think is really interesting, is that these heavenly bodies serve as indicators of what form of divine expression is dominant. So in, in a previous course this year, was last course or two courses ago? Last course, two courses ago. We talked about, two courses ago, we talked about our relationship with God and 
different names that we use when talking about God, different expressions uh, of God's presence in our world. And you see that quite clearly in Jewish tradition. We talk about all different emotional uh, references when we explore our relationship with our creator. Well, how do you know if God is in a position of kindness at this particular moment or in a position of justice? On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we talk about God sitting on a throne and it being uh, Yom Hadin, a day of judgment, right? And how we, we try to bring compassion into that conversation. Maybe these celestial bodies are, these constellations are simply an early warning system as to what this particular moment is expressing from our creator. So when we look at this collection of stars or the relationship of this planet to our world, we might say to ourselves, oh, this is a moment where God is compassionate. This is a moment where God is uh, kind. This is a moment where God is more severe or more noble. Yes, Deborah. Breastplate, yeah. That is a wonderful example. Wonderful example. I'm going to repeat it because for the people that are listening at home. So Deborah mentioned the Choshen Mishpat, the breastplate, which had 12 stones corresponding to each of the 12 tribes, 12 different and unique stones. Very cool. If you think about what is a birthstone, it's a kind of a birthstone, but it's not just to you, it's to your entire tribe. And it tells us what the stones were. Nofech, Sapir, Yahalom, you have citrine, sapphires. Um, and there was a heavenly voice that would emanate from behind the breastplate because there was a flap that folded behind it. God's name was written on a piece of parchment that was behind there. And it was this point of connection. Now, would anybody worship the breastplate? Of course not. Because they understood that this was a conduit. This was a, a wonderful opportunity to feel and gain some understanding about God's relationship with the Jewish people and the world at large at that particular moment. It was very valuable, but that's what it was. It was simply a conduit. So understanding these celestial bodies in the same manner is very important so that we can value their presence in our life, but never worship them, God forbid. Let's talk about the challenges to astrology. And there are some significant challenges to conventional astrology, which is why I preferenced our conversation by saying value, yes, but make sure you get it from the correct source. And before you upend your life, divorce your spouse, sell your car, throw away your business because of what you read in the back of the People magazine, stop for a second and reevaluate. We have three primary challenges to astrology. Number one, freedom of choice. Freedom of choice. How can you tell me, based off of what you saw in the stars, that my future has already been determined for me? You've taken away any opportunity I have to choose my path in life. 
Subsequently, whatever actions I take are of no meaning and no consequence. Number two, reward and punishment. If there's no value to the choices I make, if I had no opportunity to choose differently, then why would I be rewarded? Why would I be punished? We know, of course, our tradition tells us differently. And finally, what's the value of prophecy? We have prophets that have risen throughout generations, throughout our history, that fill books, beautiful, beautiful books, and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Ezekiel. And thank God, because who here loves uh, Ezekiel bread? Right? Big fans here. Right? I remember when my son, I don't know if he was six, what put the two and two together. Because he had heard of the prophet, but only in, as Yechaskel in the Hebrew name. And he was reading a Hebrew-English um, Bible, and he saw it, wrote Ezekiel. And I was like, wait a second. Is that related to the bread? And I said, yeah, the bread we eat is a family heirloom from the prophet. He's like, yeah, it tastes like it. <laughs> so if we valued prophecy so much, it must be that there's some unique quality that these individuals have that isn't available to the masses who simply have to look to the stars and know the future exactly as it's going to happen. So these are the three challenges that we have to this study of astrology. Let's explore each of them in greater detail. Text two, Maimonides tells us the importance of free choice. Do not entertain the thesis held by foolish people that God decrees at the time of a person's creation whether he or she will be righteous or wicked. If God were to decree that an individual will be righteous or wicked or that there will be an insurmountable inborn quality that compels a person to a particular path of behavior, way of thinking, attributes, or deeds, as the foolish proponents of astrology imagine, how could he command us, do this, do not do this, improve your behavior, or do not follow after your wickedness? According to their mistaken conception, it has already been decreed or predetermined by the person's insurmountable nature that he or she must act in a certain way. <laughs> if you've already decided how it's going to end, what I'm going to do, then that's it. You can't tell me to do differently. You got to just let me be. In addition, were this to be true, what room would there be for the entire Torah? By what standard of justice would retribution be administered to the wicked or reward granted to the righteous? As it says in Genesis, shall the judge of the entire world not act justly? So we know freedom of choice is an absolute principle in Jewish tradition. Very important principle. We struggle with it sometimes, trying to balance that out with a, a God that is all knowledgeable and all present, right? Omnipotent and omniscient. But we know it's definitely there. You cannot take away our free choice. It's what gives us value to our struggle. It's the reason why the Torah gives us all of these commandments to say, hey, you got to choose the right thing to do. And I know it's not easy to choose the right thing to do in this world that I created. So let me give you all of these opportunities to reconnect and reevaluate. That's what the Torah is. That's what the mitzvot are designed to do. So you cannot tell me that everything is already written out. My future is already there, clear, plain as day, written in the stars. It does not add up. And keep in mind, Maimonides is not saying that astrology has no value. But he is telling us how important free choice is to the point that if you look at text three, he writes, it is a fundamental belief in Jewish faith 
that God grants prophecy to humans. So, not only freedom of choice, reward of punishment, but Maimonides tells us, we know that certain people are given prophecy, not everybody. So how can we find value in the astrological bodies? How can we look at where they are and what they're doing and get some kind of guidance from it without it limiting our freedom of choice? Without it taking away reward and punishment for the ultimate actions that we choose? And without diminishing the value of our prophets that rise up throughout history to help guide us and tell us what the future might hold. So let's start off with the freedom of choice challenge. And we're going to look at uh, natal astrology. So astrology specifically applied to when a person is born, right? What are the signs when a person is born? A person's first connection to astrology when they are born. And uh, we're going to go all the way back to the Talmudic Academy in Babylonia, modern-day Iraq, which was the seat of Jewish leadership for hundreds of years after the destruction of the Second Temple. Text 4, page 57. Regarding astrological predictions concerning promiscuity, theft, and the like, the celestial bodies only generate an inclination and desire. Such people feel a strong attraction to theft or promiscuity, but they can restrain themselves and overcome their inclination. This is like the standard negative inclination that we all deal with. Sometimes it entices us strongly, but we can overpower it. The celestial bodies can only cause an attraction, increasing the strength of the negative inclination. God has given such people the requisite strength to overpower this inclination, and people who must struggle mightily to overcome their negative inclination as a result of those circumstances are granted greater reward by doing so than people who do not feel so strongly tempted. In summary, he says, all that celestial bodies are able to determine, according to those who believe in their power, is a desire that can be overcome. So he says quite clearly, this child was born at this moment, on this day, in this month, they might have a certain inclination. And it might not be a good one. But that's not a determinative stance. It means they will have a natural inclination towards something, but they will also have the strength to overcome it. And there could be great value in understanding what that natural tendency is. Not to compel them to that sort of life, but to strengthen their resolve to overcome it. We see this highlighted a little bit in the Torah and the story of Isaac, Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Rebecca's carrying around these twins, and even in utero, they show tendencies, inclinations. She walks by, it says, she walks by a house of study, and Jacob starts to kick. And she walks by some kind of negative institution, and Asaph starts to kick. Child's not even born. It's not fair. How can you say that Asaph was a horrible individual, did terrible things, if he was born with that inclination? Classic question. The answer, well, he was born with that inclination, but he was also born with the ability to overcome it, 
to harness it, to channel it into something positive. And if he chooses not to, then that's on him. And that's exactly what the stars might be telling us about someone born in this particular point, at this particular moment. So number one, freedom of choice means that it doesn't determine our actions. We cannot look to astrology to tell us what we will do in any particular moment, at any particular time. It can tell us what we might be inclined to do. You might have a nature that moves you in this direction. Understand it, embrace it, recognize it, and if it's not positive, channel it. There's, there's a tradition that says if someone's born with an aggressive nature or a red nature, right? That doesn't mean that red's on your palate, ladies. Don't. If red's on your palate, you're fine. If anyone's had their palates done. If not, call Dina. Um, if someone's born with an aggressive nature, they should channel it into becoming a butcher. That's what it says. Become a butcher. Instead of using it to do something nefarious to another human being, do something constructive with it. Some people say become a mohel, but I'm, I'm not so... <laughs> I haven't made peace with that one yet. Three, three boys. And, and honestly, when I hired my mohel, I didn't ask him what his nature was. But maybe in hindsight, that should have been an important question. When were you born? What was going on with Mars at the time? I don't know. So number one, freedom of choice is absolute. No one's telling you what you're gonna do, but they might tell you what you want to do, and then you'll have to choose. Number two, let's look at reward and punishment. It's interesting that when we talk about reward and punishment and the value that it places in our tradition, all right, we're not saying that this guides us to make choices. A lot of times when you have a conversation related to word and punishment, people walk away with a very um, diminutive perspective. Oh, so I do the right thing, so I'm going to get a reward. And I'm not going to do the wrong thing because then I'm going to get punished. We know that's not the case in Judaism because quite clearly it says in Perkea Vot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter one, I'll tell you, don't be like those servants that serve their master just because they're going to get a reward. Rather, do it because you revere your creator and you want to serve your creator. So, so we know that's not what we're talking about here. Reward and punishment here is natural consequence. Natural consequence. If you plant your crop, right? if you take care of the horses, the horses will be healthy, they'll run properly. It's not a reward, it's just a natural outgrowth. right? If you plant your crop properly, it will produce food, you'll be able to eat. If you don't, <laughs> then you'll starve. It's a punishment, but it's just a natural punishment. When we talk about reward and punishment in Judaism, that's what we're referencing. And reward and punishment in Judaism is referenced in relation to actions that we take. Specifically, actions that can even transform our future and overcome astrological signs. This is a tremendous example one that has been used throughout history to inspire people, inspire and motivate people to do kindness, to be charitable. 
text 5a, page 59. Rabbi Akiva, the famous Rabbi Akiva, who had thousands of students, who only started studying Torah after 40 years old, who unfortunately is associated with this time because his students died from a terrible plague when they didn't show each other respect and they stopped dying in Lagba Omer, one of the reasons we celebrate Lagba Omer. This Rabbi Akiva had a daughter and the astrologers at the time, interestingly enough, the astrologers that he's referencing were not Jewish astrologers. Okay? They were, uh, he was living in Mesopotamia, okay? and these were non-Jewish astrologers that were prominent there, told him that his daughter would be bitten by a snake on her wedding day and die. And Rabbi Akiva was very worried about this. This is a, this is a, a leading giant of Torah. Throughout the entire Talmud, he is one of the most prominent scholars featured in the Talmud. Okay? And he's concerned about this astrological sign from non-Jewish astrologers. So number one, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? There's value in astrology. Right? If there was no value, <laughs> it would make no difference to him. But he recognized there's something there. On the young lady's wedding day, she took the ornamental pin from her hair and stuck it into a hole in the wall for safekeeping. When she did so, it lodged into the eye of a snake, killing it. In the morning, when she pulled the pin out of the wall, that dead snake followed, attached to the pin. Not to get too graphic, but just to provide some context here, right? We're talking about wedding night. Wedding night for a historically traditional Jewish couple, it's completely dark in the room, their first night together. So in the context, you could understand how she's going to bed. She takes her pin out from her hair. She can't see anything. She doesn't really know what's going on. She just sticks the pin. She has no idea what's happened. She wakes up in the morning. It's light. Boom. She sees this. Yes. We didn't finish telling everyone, Deborah. We didn't tell everyone what the success was. Well, hopefully, I'm just saying, but before anything happened, yes. her, the Rabbi Akiva must have been going into prayer, must have been focusing and focusing. Absolutely. So it's not just whatever the result is, it's... 100%. Uh, I'm going to address that in a second. Let me finish the story and then address that. It's, it's a phenomenal point. Rabbi Akiva asked his daughter, because she obviously, after she overcame the shock, she came and told her father what happened. Rabbi Akiva asked her daughter, what did you do to merit this? And she told him in the afternoon, she went through the story, the entire story of the day, and then she tells him in the afternoon, a pauper knocked on the door, but everyone was preoccupied with the wedding feast and nobody heard him. And I stuck, stood up, took my portion of food and gave it to him. That's it. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal? But back then it wasn't like you just rang a bell and a waiter brought out more food and it was like, no, 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 that was her portion of food. Rabbi Kiva said to her, you performed a mitzvah and you were saved in its merit. Rabbi Kiva went out and taught regarding this incident, tzedakah tatzil mimaves, a phrase that has been used throughout history, 2,000 years, that charity, tzedakah, right, can save a person from death. Um, which is a great segue that tonight's class 
is dedicated in honor of two people who need a complete and speedy recovery. Chaim Feivel Shepsel, the son of Chaya Sarah, and I wrote their names down. Altashena, daughter of Rachel Yosifa, who is a 16-year-old girl who's not feeling well. They should be have a complete and speedy recovery. So this story is just a mind-blowing story. Here you have an astrological sign from a group of non-Jewish astrologers that has this leading sage concerned. And absolutely, Deborah, he's praying and he's doing right 100%. But it wasn't the praying alone that transformed it. It was the action, it was the deed, which is a, a, an important conversation about the power of prayer and how prayer coupled with action is what really makes the most profound impact. And if we're trying to change something, overcome some kind of decree, whatever it is, we need to be mindful that prayer alone is only part of the equation. You're, you're, you're a thousand percent right. But here, here's what I would say. There, there, there are different levels of charitable giving. No, but it's an important point. This is, this is the most pure form possible. This woman had no, she didn't even have knowledge of what was going on. She didn't know the threat that she was facing. She had no idea. She gave it for 100% pure, pure purposes. Okay, so there is, Maimonides has a whole list, seven different levels of charitable giving. Anonymous, the giver's anonymous, the recipient's anonymous, right? Giving it with a full heart, giving someone a job, which is even higher level, uh, opening a partnership with somebody. There's a whole different levels of charitable giving. I wouldn't say that somebody that says, you know, uh, look, this person's in a terrible thing. I'm going to give money to charity specifically so that they should be healed. I wouldn't say it's not valuable. It's still charitable giving. You're still doing something good. They're still helping people. Is it as pure maybe as someone that has no motive? Maybe not, but I, I, there's definitely value there. But Rashi tells us on this conversation, through prayer and meritorious acts, I'm reading from text 5b, one's astrological destiny can be changed. Thank you, Heidi, great point. <laughs> uh, prayer, and meritorious acts can change our astrology. So when we talk about reward and punishment, what does that mean? It means that there are natural consequences to the choices that we make, positive or negative. There could be natural negative consequences to the choices that we make. Your horoscope, right, your astrology in that moment might say you're going to meet a wonderful person, right? The love of your life. Right. Was that in your uh, Chinese uh, fortune cookie yesterday? Wasn't there. Okay. What happens? You meet the man, but you act like an idiot. So what happened? Your astrology gave you an idea of what might come to play into the future, but your choice as to the way you were going to behave ultimately 
blew it up. So is that a punishment? It's a natural consequence of the choice that you made. So we can see how tendencies, inclinations, they can exist, but at the same time, ultimately, the biggest arbiter of what's going to happen in our lives is us. Positive, negative, we are the ones that choose. Let's talk about prophecy. Text six. The Midrash tells us on the story of Pharaoh and the babies being thrown into the Nile, astrologers chirp and do not understand what they are chirping. They mutter and they do not understand what they are muttering. Pharaoh's astrologers saw in the stars that the savior of the Jewish people would be condemned by water. So they made a decree that all male children be cast into the Nile. After Moses had been placed in the river by his mother, safely protected in a basket, the astrologers said that the Jewish savior has already been cast into the water and Pharaoh revoked the decree. What the astrologers did not know is that the water that would condemn Moses was the episode of the waters of Meriva. Ah, what is it talking about? So Moses, of course, floated down the Nile River and he got rescued by Batya and he went on to be raised in the palace and then he ran away and then he came back and he took the Jewish people out of Egypt, right? And then we get to sing, Ilu, Ilu, Hotsi, Anu, and eat crackers for eight days. But what happens after that story? They go into the desert for 40 years. And where does Moses pass away? Right before he crosses into the land of Israel. Right, Claudia kind of feels like Moses right now. She's <laughs> inside Joe. Why didn't Moses enter into the land of Israel? What condemned him to die in the desert? So the Torah tells us a specific episode where they arrive at Merivah, this location in the desert on their journey, and there's no water. And God tells Moses to go and talk to this rock, and out's going to come fresh water. So Moses goes and talks to the rock, and there's no water. And Moses thinks in his mind, wait a second. You know, a number of years ago, we had the same issue. And at that time, I hit the rock, and out came water. So maybe that's what I should do here. So what does he do? He takes out his staff, his special staff. He hits the rock, and out comes water. But God tells him, eh, you didn't follow what I said. I never told you to hit the rock. I told you to talk to the rock. You weren't talking to the right rock. That's why the water didn't come out. And that's why he does not enter into the land of Israel. Because it's clearly, this is clearly in the Torah. Because you didn't follow what I said, therefore you will die with your generation. And he dies literally just before Joshua leads the Jewish people into the land, which most notably gave birth to Martin Luther King Jr.'s great speech, right? I can see it, but it's not right. That whole speech is built on this story. Moses going up the mountain, seeing the land of Israel, but knowing that he's not going to be able to cross into the land. So the astrologers were pretty accurate, but they weren't accurate. They had this idea that water is going to drown Moses. They were so close, right? Really, really close because there was water. It did bring Moses' downfall, but oh, just this small, small little detail. That happens dozens and dozens of years after he's already led the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. 
which as far as Pharaoh concerns, is all that matters. So astrological signs is nothing close to prophecy. It doesn't give us that kind of detail that we can rely on, that can prove, create an accurate picture of what the future is going to look like. You have no idea. It's a shot in the dark. Some association with water that will somehow bring Moses down a notch. That's about as accurate as it was. And for Pharaoh, who's trying to create, he's trying to create a law. He's trying to rule his empire based off of the astrology. Well, you could see how silly it was, how laughable it was. In hindsight, he was literally throwing darts in a dark room. And that's why it didn't work. So let's turn to page 62. Everyone should have a pen. If you don't, we have. And let us write down these three principles within Jewish astrology, free choice, reward and punishment, and prophecy. What is the problem posed by conventional astrology? And how do we resolve that difference between conventional astrology and Jewish astrology? Yes, please. You should have it, you have it right there. It's right there. You've got the box, it's on page 62. The problem posed and the resolution. The goal of tonight's class really is so that you can get value from astrology, because we see that throughout history we have. It could be something informative, something exciting, but you gotta have those limitations. You have to have it clearly defined what its place is in our tradition and how it can be incorporated. should do a poll, see what the thermostat is set on and our virtual participants. Let's wrap it up. All 
Oh, that's cool. So, based off of our conversation, you might think that everything I've presented to you up until now is a general consensus of Judaism's perspective on astrology. But that is not the case. Something like astrology can be very, <laughs> very controversial for obvious reasons. Something that overlaps with false deities, idolatrous theologies, is like playing with fire. Which is why many leading scholars didn't find any value in astrology whatsoever and cautioned people to stay as far away from it as possible. For example, Maimonides himself. Text 8, page 63. All the philosophers consider everything the astrologers say to be false. I know that you may search in the teachings of our true sages in the Talmud, Mishnah, and Midrash and find teachings that appear to state that astrological configurations at the time of a person's birth determines certain matters. Don't be bothered by this. One doesn't depart from the settled law in favor of preliminary discussions. Similarly, one should not reject logical conclusions that have already been conclusively proven and instead latch onto the teachings of an individual sage. It is possible that you are misunderstanding something. There may be a hidden meaning to this teaching, or it may have been stated in response to a specific need or a contemporary event. So Maimonides is not a fan of checking your daily horoscope, even though he's fully aware of these Talmudic conversations like Rabbi Akiva and others that we just shared. He still says there's no validity. Maybe they had some kind of alternate meaning in that particular story. Maybe it was something relevant to that particular time, some kind of supernatural event or something. But generally speaking, practicing astrology is forbidden according to Jewish law. That is what he is suggesting. That's what Maimonides is telling us. Text 9. Okay. One, somebody in the virtual uh, world is telling us that they had an experience where people tend to act a little loony around the time of the full moon. That's a very interesting conversation. And there is no doubt that our month, right, is according to the moon. So we celebrate the full moon as always the 15th of the month. A lot of our holidays are ascribed to that. It's an interesting point of reference we're not going to go into right now but thank you for mentioning that Maimonides says quite clearly text 9 what is the definition of fortune telling forbidden by the Torah this refers to a person who tries to predict auspicious times by means of astrology saying this day will be a good day this day will be a bad day it is appropriate to perform a particular task on a certain day or this year or this month will not be opportune for this particular matter Isaiah says very, very clearly that it is forbidden according to Jewish law. Because he's sourcing this. Right? Maimonides doesn't just say something is forbidden. If he believes it's forbidden, it's one of the 613 commandments. And there is a commandment against using witchcraft to predict the future. In his mind, 
that also incorporates astrology. So by no means has the Jewish view of astrology always been unanimous. The Ramban, however, Rambam, Ramban, very, very similar. In English, they're known as Maimonides and Nachmanides. And even though their names seem quite similar, they don't agree on everything. In fact, they love to argue. The Ramban takes a very different approach. And you can see some of these other sages who also believed in the value of astrology highlighted on page 66. We're not going to go into that right now. Let's jump to page 68, text 10. The meaning of the verse, be wholehearted with God, tamim tiya imashemalokecha, is that we should devote our hearts completely to God and trust that he alone controls everything. Okay, that makes sense. We should not inquire from astrologers or any other future tellers, nor should we trust that their predictions will be fulfilled. If we hear any predictions from them, we should assert that everything is in hands of God because he is omnipotent and can change the constellations of the heavens at will, negating all the predictions made by astrologers. We should believe that all future occurrences are determined by our service of God. So the Ramban doesn't take the same approach as the Rambam, as Maimonides. It's not quite as harsh. He didn't say that it's biblically prohibited. Rather, he says, put your focus elsewhere. We just established that you ultimately exercise control over the future of your life, the choices that you make, and the natural consequences that will come as a result of those choices. Therefore, that's where you should put your time, energy, and focus. A true, more meaningful way to live your life is not constantly scared by what the horoscope tells you, rather concentrating on serving God and observing the mitzvot, living your best life possible. Well, Maimonides was saying that this is horrible. Yes, but there's a reason for you saying that. Of course. So both is going. They're both directing people not to focus on astrology. Yes. Astrology is inaccurate, unreliable. God is worthy of our faith. That's where you put your focus. Here you have something that's definitive, something that's stable, sturdy, dependable, and here you have something unreliable. So where are you gonna put your focus? What's gonna be the guiding force in your life? That's what Nachmanides is telling us. How does this relate in a practical sense? Meaning, today, 2023, I've got this rabbi telling me this. I've got this leading scholar telling me that. What do I do? So generally, when a person's trying to figure out what to do practically, the first point of reference is the code of Jewish law. The code of Jewish law is a legal code that says, here's this commandment, here's this commandment, here's this, here's this. And there are some nuances within the code of Jewish law, especially between Ashkenazic Jews and Sephardic Jews. But for the vast majority, they're on the same page. Yes, you get to eat rice on Passover. <laughs> Text 11. What does Rabbi Yosef Karo write in the Code of Jewish Law? We do not make inquiries from astrologers. 
So he doesn't necessarily address whether this is a biblical prohibition like Maimonides is saying, or a non-biblical prohibition like Nachmanides is saying. He simply says, almost as a matter of fact, that's not our way. It's not our path. That is not where we put our focus. Now, somebody might say to me, does that mean that if I do the mitzvah, I know definitively what's going to happen as a result? You tell me, right, that the stars can't predict exactly what's going to happen in the future. I put my faith in God. That will determine what's going to happen in the future. Will I always know, understand, and see it before it happens? Of course, we know the answer is no. Text 12. If we have firm faith in God regarding everything we do, he will transform the astrological destiny from bad to good. What does that mean? What does that mean? That, that my destiny is changed as a result of what I'm doing. We've talked about the beauty of the human divine partnership that we have in our world and how incredible it is. Human divine partnership means that God creates a world, creates an environment, gives us energy and life, orchestrates events, and ultimately we make the choice. And when we make that choice, there's a divine response. A new reality is created. A new path is formed. And so we have a constant ebb and flow in this divine partnership. God makes, and then we choose. And then God remakes, and then we choose. And they go, positive or, God forbid, the opposite. So rather than thinking about what the astrological spheres are predicting, I have the opportunity through the choices that I make, the decisions that I make, to actually recreate the future. I'm not necessarily predicting the future through the mitzvahs that I do, but I'm reshaping that future positively. That I know 110%. How that will ultimately play out, what that new, better future is going to look like because I did this tzedakah, this kind deed in this moment, I may not realize, I may not know. But I know definitively that I'm creating a better future for myself and for the people around me. Text 13. Someone wrote to the Rebbe a letter asking about the Jewish attitude towards horoscopes. Here's what the Rebbe wrote. Generally, astrology, bless you, and the like play no part, double blessing, play no part in Jewish life as it is also written in the Holy Scriptures of the signs in heaven you shall have no fear. On the contrary, we have the commandment, thou shalt be wholehearted with your God. Remember that quote from before which is also quoted in the Code of Jewish Law. This means that the Jew has to have complete and wholehearted faith in God and in his benevolent providence, which extends to each and every one individually. As for taking an interest in horoscope purely as curiosity and the like, as you mentioned, this would amount to a waste of interest, which should be channeled in a more productive way. For 
It is explained in Hasidic philosophy that God has not given man an excess of capacities nor a deficiency of it. In other words, every person, and especially a Jewish person, has been given a certain amount of capacities and power of concentration, all of which must be utilized in the fulfillment of his purpose in life on earth. So you might say, hey, what's the big deal? Right? I'm not living my life by my horoscopes. I'm just kind of dabbling a little. You know, it's just interesting stuff. The Rebbe's saying every choice you make has consequences. You have a certain amount of focus, energy, intellectual and emotional capacity. Where are you putting it? If you're putting even 5% here, that's 5% less you have available to things of greater value. All of which must be, utili much, must be utilized in the fulfillment of his purpose in life on this earth, namely to live in accordance with the Torah and to disseminate justice and righteousness. It follows from the above that if a person should divert any of his capacities, thoughts and concentrations on a useless things, even if it be harmless, it is nevertheless harmful in the sense that he's creating a deficiency in another area. So what is Rebbe telling us? Engaging with horoscopes is a distraction from where our mind should be focused. Okay, I'm going to skip over this part, but basically the idea is that DNA today is like the new astrology. The notion that somehow my life, my choices are predetermined based off of my DNA is the same idea as outsourcing our decision making and recognizing that ultimately that choice is going to be the most governing force in my life. Let's jump ahead here. Okay. Last thing we're going to talk about. So ultimately, what I'd like for us to go away from tonight's discussion is the following. The power that you have as an individual is incredible, incredible. Sometimes our search for signs, for guidance, for information from the stars and from the planets is because we fail to recognize the power we have within us to ultimately determine our future. When we relinquish that power, we naturally look, at, look for it in other places. So, yes, we had a conversation about Jewish astrology, and it's there. No one can deny it. It is there. There is relevance to these astrological signs to our everyday life. And even Jewish tradition tells us that. For example, the Kiddush on Shabbat. But for us to refocus our decision-making, to refocus the future of our life away from our choice, our ability, is to relinquish the power that God has given each and every one of us. So, if anything, we should walk away from this emboldened. Not just to look at horoscopes, but more importantly, to take full advantage, full opportunity of every choice that comes our way, knowing that those choices will have the biggest impact on what the future of our lives will be. Thank you everybody for joining tonight, for tuning in.
and uh, all of us joining online. Our next class, which will be uh, next Tuesday, is on the evil eye. And uh, as a result, Ellie will not be changing her shirt from today till next Tuesday. Um, you won't be setting any records. In Yeshiva, we had a guy who went three months with the same pair of pants. Yeah, didn't have a lot of friends. Um, just to make note, uh, this Sunday, Dina is going to be leading an amazing challah bake session for anyone that would like to join. It's uh, specifically pre-Shavuot, so she'll be teaching how to be making floral challah, challah shaped like flowers. I don't fully understand it, but I know it'll be delicious. And cheesy challah, since the holiday of Shavuot is celebrated with dairy, so cheese in your challah, on your challah. So that's this Sunday night. If you would like to join, please reach out to us or register on our website. And of course... A week from Friday is Shavuot, very important Jewish holiday, unfortunately sometimes gets overlooked. We will be having our delicious dairy dinner, cheesecake party here Friday evening at six o'clock. We'll read the Ten Commandments and then we'll have dinner and then we'll be able to light Shabbat candles and celebrate Shabbat. So we're gonna get a lot of opportunities to celebrate all everything together. It's free, it's chabadchaicenter.com slash yummy, forward slash yummy uh, for free reservations. And we have one more chat comment. Yes, absolutely. I will suggest books on numerology and astrology from a Jewish standpoint. Uh, that's it. Good night, everybody. Thank you for coming. Drive safely. Thank you. you can take more treats on your way out. Thank you, Rabbi. And again, if anyone did not get a book, Diane, again, I'm so sorry. Please reach out to me and we'll make sure that we fix that. Good night, Claudia. What's up, Carol? Rabbi Mindy, what time is the Friday night? Six o'clock. Oh, at six o'clock? Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds lovely. It does. Good. It sounds wonderful. And, and you said there's no charge for that? No, no charge. No? Okay. Thank you for tuning in for another podcast from Mendy's Musings. Have a great day.